You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Rick, and Sean is missing today, frolicking through the flower fields of Ireland, probably. I am joined instead by the editor-in-chief of the Babylon Bee. His name is Kyle Mann. He is an author, speaker, hero, and villain all in one. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hero and heroes and villains right here in this <laughs> chair. I like it. It's good yeah. to be both at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the the reason that I really was looking forward to bringing Kyle on, uh, he's a friend of mine. He went and uh, was very gracious to interview me for the Babylon Bee podcast. That was, I don't know, way more views than, or way more listens than this podcast gets. And it helped out a lot during the deliverance campaign. And he has a book that he just wrote. And I'm really excited to dive in to all of the marketing aspects of the book, including we we're like really before we started recording, we were talking about the target market and how to appeal to the market. It's uh, uh, so the book is titled the postmodern pilgrims progress, which is uh, an allegorical tale and written by Kyle and a uh, co-author Joel Berry. Right. And um, the book itself has an, a very interesting target. Um, we've talked about marketing to audiences, very niche audiences. And in particular, I'll let Kyle get into it, but uh, maybe we could start there. And Kyle, would you mind talking about working with a publisher to target the audience you did? So who who were the people that you were targeting with this book? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll back up a little and talk about you know how we conceived this and why we decided to go with the publisher and 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 how that process worked. So you know we had an idea for a book and. It's, you know, any creator know as any creator knows, like you have an idea and it's like this perfect idea in your head. And then the nuts and bolts of how this is actually going to come together and how do you find that audience? And is, are there more than seven people in the world that are going to read this? You know, that, that's kind of always the question for all of those creators, you know. Moms don't count. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, if you don't, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and my mom has purchased seven copies, so. <laughs> I got that going for me. Yeah. So, you know, we had this idea and, you know, the, the brief elevator pitch is that we took John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We made it funny. We made it sci-fi. We made it crazy. And we took um, a humorous, satirical approach to it and put it kind of in the modern day. And that's the that's the elevator pitch. And it's such a weird elevator pitch that in my head, it's one thing. And then you take it to a publisher and they're like, the publishers are always thinking in terms of, you know, the point of sale decision of someone who's actually in, in a bookshop or on Amazon and looking at this thing and going, they, they need, they, publishers need books to fit into neat categories. I know it's the, I know it's a similar thing with board games and, and video games and such. Like you need to be able to say, this is, this is dominion with, with a board, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like, a, it's like something to... you know, but better or but different. <laughs> exactly, and and I mean, and we've pitched some movies around Hollywood, and it's the same thing. Your pitch isn't like, okay, let me take you on the journey. There's this hero and blah blah. blah. Your pitch is like, this is Back to the Future in space. You know, that's <laughs> how you pitch a movie to a to a producer because their minds instantly go to all of the the numbers that that other movie made. You know, at the box office or whatever. 
And so if I were to go to a Christian publisher and pitch um, an Amish romance novel, you know, they know broadly that that will make them, you know, that will sell 150 billion copies or whatever. And uh, <laughs> sadly, <laughs> is that a thing? And, uh, uh, dude, that's, if you look at the top list of Christian fiction, it's all Amish romance. Wow. <laughs> I was yeah, going to say, all you need is romance, period. Romance is like the top selling like category anywhere. It's in every supermarket known to man. It is, but the Christian uh -huh. market is, is is strange because, you know, women don't want to read the, you know, all the smut, but they still kind of, they still kind of do. No. John Mark had to unbutton his top button as he <laughs> pulled the, exactly. the hay bales. I don't know. <laughs> put a little spice in every book. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But they want, they still want the romance element. So it's always like in an Amish community, you know, the, the Amish yeah, romance yeah. is a big thing. The city slicker yeah. gets marooned in an Amish community. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, ba it, it, it's basically the Hallmark channel, you know, yeah. on, it, it, as, as a book. But yeah, I, I think that it's interesting because with something like this, it was extremely fascinating to me the moment I heard about it, which it was a, in essence, a sci-fi fantasy which I absolutely love because I'm a nerd and I love that theme and also a Christian thing, which those two don't really go together very well, not very often. And uh, well, I'll say not very often. And when they go together, it's not often very well. So, you know, Chronicles of Narnia is kind of something that broke through there. Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness did very well and, and whatnot, but there are so many cringy, and I've looked and tried and given up on, you know, great sci-fi fantasy Christian stuff. I don't know. I couldn't even make it through the Circle series. Maybe maybe something's wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the sci, you know, I, maybe I oversell it with the sci-fi comic because the sci-fi is a little. It, it's this is almost more like the the, the the setting and the framing are a little sci-fi in that we have a guy in the modern day who kind of falls through a wormhole into another universe, and that universe. Is kind of low fantasy. So um, once we've established that and he's in the fantasy world, you know, you, you kind of you kind of leave behind a lot of the sci-fi trappings and he's more in kind of the, the low fantasy world. But then there's still references to stuff throughout that makes it feel more more Discworld uh, or Hitchhiker's Guide than Bunyan by the time okay. you're actually in the story. But that but that was the struggle, you know, going back to the question from, from before, that was the struggle pitching this to publishers we actually this actually got rejected by i think 15 publishers before we got we landed with salem regnery uh so it doesn't surprise me that it was rejected by a lot of people maybe that couldn't see the vision and i think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast that are making a thing and may decide to go with a publisher or pitch it to publishers they'll probably get rejected too but did salem take your project on because they believed in your vision or did they have their own vision and ask you to kind of conform a little bit how did that work? Well, we we have we have just been absolutely blown away by how supportive um, Salem was, and that like even if we had gotten multiple offers for this thing, and that's not to say there weren't any offers. There were like there were some opportunities to get it published, but it was it was more the lower end publishers that like you know uh, I mean I don't know how familiar people Without are with the publishing industry, but small yes yeah, small distribution um you know you only really get paid on the back end if you hit x targets you know that kind of stuff where it leans more towards the vanity publishing space where you're just publishing it just to say i have a published book but you're not really it's not really getting out there into the hands of readers yeah so there's that but say no salem 
when they heard the pitch, they were like, immediately, we want this. And that was really awesome. We also ended up spinning that into doing some other books with them, our Babylon Bee Guide series. So we've done our Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness and our Babylon Bee Guide to Democracy is coming out in a few months here. So it's kind of blossomed into this awesome relationship. And they, like I was telling you about those Christian publishers from before who would like give us notes like, oh, you can't say Dungeons and Dragons. You know, <laughs> we put some pretty put some pretty out there references. I mean, this book itself has references to pornography, suicide, um, drinking, uh, smoking. You know, th there's stuff in there that, you know, obviously it's not treated. It's not treated like like uh, some, some of that stuff's a good thing or whatever. But it's a uh, but it's in there, you know, and they didn't they didn't have any problem with that. No, you know, I think essential to any relationship with a good publisher is that they believe in your vision. You know, obviously any publisher is going to have certain items of feedback. We, we, you know, we could go ahead and like the Babylon Bee has become much more popular in the past couple of years since we pitched this book and since we pitched the Babylon Bee guides. Like we could probably take it elsewhere and get wider distribution or uh, more money or, you know, whatever. But the value of having a publisher who believes in your idea and is behind you 100% um, it, it, it's probably worth that extra, you know, any, any lost distribution or, or money that you might have from, from going with a different publisher. So it's not all just size or, or the size of the offer for sure. That's really interesting. I, I find in, in my case with deliverance, I actually tried to take it to other publishers and have them publish it. And there were some that said, no, I, I don't want to touch this. And there are others that said, yes, I would like to take this. And I found that I I don't I don't know if ideologically is the wrong is the right word but there were they were going to I feel change the core of the product and I just didn't want the the integrity of the product to be compromised or my vision to be you know to fail to be realized I guess my personal concern with a with any and I think a lot of people especially if it's their baby the thing they've been working on for such a long time is signing on the dotted line and making a commitment to publishing with a particular company and then later having issues, you know? So I, I don't know if, if that's something that you had initial concerns with, because this is your, I mean, your first partnership with Salem publishing, right. And then the, and then they signed on the other things afterward. Is that the case? Well, yeah, it was kind of, there was kind of a bundle deal for everything, but, um, and actually guide to wokeness ended up getting published first, um, because okay. it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a rush project. But, but yeah, at the time I, I signed with them, you know, I had no idea if they were going to remain supportive through the whole project. I have experience with other publishers in the past where they weren't not supportive, but Salem's a little bit smaller of a publisher compared with, um, compared with some of the big guys in the Christian space, like Zondervan or I don't know, like Simon and Chester's imprint and, uh, Water, uh Waterbrook is, uh, is that Simon or Penguin House's, in, Peng, Penguin Random House's imprint? When we go to Salem, we're a bigger fish in their pond, you know? Okay. Compared with going to a guy where like, you know, if you if you go to Ted Decker's publisher and they agree to publish your book and your book doesn't immediately sell a billion copies, they're probably going to just drop you like a hot tamale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, keep they're the gonna, rights to your book, right? I mean, they have the rights to your book and, because that's what they, that's what these publishers do is they kind of take gambles um, it's the same thing in board games, you know, and same thing in video games. It's like they're, well, maybe not exactly the same thing in video games, but in, 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 you know, in board games, it's like everybody's looking for the next ticket to ride and they, they take a dozen gambles a year and one of those maybe breaks through and the ones that don't, they're just not going to get any support. And that's how it is in book publishing too, is like, there's, 
there's uh you know if you don't immediately hit the bestseller list and 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 uh, and blow things up they paid you in advance they already you already have your money they just chalk it up as a loss and move on to the next move on to the next project someone that, that's a little bit smaller of a publisher and i don't mean to discount salem that you know they have a very large um radio network and all of that and, and they are a pretty large publisher but they are a little more niche market that they are focused on a, a certain persuasion of Christian and a certain type of book that they typically do. So they are able to kind of give you lasting support beyond launch compared with a publisher that uh, that just doesn't doesn't uh, continue to promote your book when it's not um, selling at Stephen King levels. So you mentioned the Babylon Bee. You know, you have a, a significantly sized email list and other things like that. I know. You personally have a loyal following, whatnot, from having such visibility on the podcast and writing and everything like that. I mean, it, it it's kind of a goes without saying, but that was probably a, a a factor in their decision to just jump forward with you. How influential would you say was your influence coming in, your email list coming in? Were they looking at that? Did they ask you for those numbers and whatnot? I think the name Babylon B is big enough that they didn't like need follower numbers and and all of that. So there, there definitely wasn't like, you know, give me your, your, give me your distribution list or, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of newsletter people do you have? The, the B name was big enough that there was interest or they, they'll look at pitches. But mm -hmm. so I, I feel a little weird speaking to people that are creating things and trying to get stuff out there. You know, if you don't have an established brand, then you're not going to be in as advantageous of a position that I was when I was pitching this around. But mm -hmm. At the, at the same time, number one, absolutely leverage any connection you have or absolutely leverage any brand that you have. There are some people that have done stuff at the B that sell their own side projects, you know, books or, or whatever it is. And the degree to which that they don't like constantly leverage and mention that Babylon B connection is the degree to which those projects kind of fizzle out. Yeah. You know, because there is like, I, I have no delusion that I would have been able to go out and sell this book without having an established, the established success of the Babylon Bee behind me. But I, I, but I have no pride issues where I'm like, no, I need the name Kyle Mann to be the big thing here. You know, I, I knew the publisher wanted it because of the Bee and I'm not ashamed of that. Like I don't need, I don't need my name out there necessarily. So definitely if you have a connection, don't be afraid to leverage it. On the other side of the coin though, Having a connection or having a name like the Babylon Bee would not have excused or would not have made up for a terrible pitch document. You know, mm -hmm. like if we had submitted a, a book pitch, which in this case was a was a pitch sheet and a um, and three sample chapters. If we didn't have a good one, it, they wouldn't have cared. Like I said, you know, you st we still had a dozen plus rejections, even with hey, we could we could easily sell this thing to our million. Uh, people on our email mm -hmm. <laughs> list or whatever, you know, uh, without, even with that, you got rejections. Me and, um, on our podcast, we interviewed uh, Scott Derrickson one time, who's the guy who directed the first Dr. Strange, you know, the good Dr. Strange movie. <laughs> um, I couldn't bring myself <laughs> to watch the next one. Just like, uh, it's, it seems so cringe. It's, it's not good. It is not good. But we, we, uh, because Scott Derrickson wasn't involved, but um, anyway, we, we, <laughs> we interviewed him. And, you know, we were asking him like, cause he had, he had established successes, you know, he had, he had directed movies that had done well, as well as one that did not do well. And when he was trying to get Dr. Strange, he said like, I was up against 20 directors and I had to like, 
and I spent $40,000 of my own money to, to create this pitch and, you know, presentation and video or what, I don't know exactly how I pitched it, but you know, he, he created this beautiful pitch package and really sold them on it. And after like a grueling months long process, he won it. So there's a, there's a misperception that you break through in one area and you're going to be able to do whatever you want in all these other areas, or you, you'll, you'll be able to just, you can just show up at a publisher's door and they're going to be like, yep, you know, we'll, we'll publish you. There's a, some narrow truth to that. If you sell a science fiction novel and it, and it, and it does really well, let's say it sells a quarter million copies, you probably won't have any trouble selling a second science fiction novel, but for the Batman B, having an established satirical news brand online does not mean that we're going to be successful in selling a sci-fi fantasy allegory to the Christian market. So right. those are things you have to be aware of, even when you do have some success like that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's very interesting just building a brand. I, I would say I almost feel like just based on my experience and also what I observe, you look at Brandon Sanderson and what he recently did with his book. Right. I mean, I am frankly shocked that you didn't just go to Kickstarter with this um, and make $41 million. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Brandon Sanderson did four books yeah. and he said, I'm not telling you what they are. They're just the Cosmere universe. And here's two paragraphs. And he made $41 million. The, I think that the brand, like a personal brand, a more of a grassroots movement of people supporting an individual or a company that they really love. I think that is publishers, uh, books and games and everything. I mean, it's going to be more and more relevant in the, in the coming years, I think. But uh, even Brandon Sanderson, who made a bunch of money, he probably has made more just in the sale of the way of Kings by itself. You know, his, the Stormlight Archive, I was trying to remember that, but shows the power of that brand. But even still, with a new or less experienced, less seasoned person, maybe somebody that has 500 to 1,000 emails on their list, as long as they're hardcore fans, that's a lot of momentum for any project. You might just, you're not playing at the level that Brandon Sanders has been playing at because he's long established and it's his you know 25th book or whatever. But I, I kind of feel like he's doing the same things that a brand new publisher should do which is, you know, talking to his fans, building loyalty and accumulating new fans on his personal email list and so on and so forth. Are, are you kind of doing, are you doing any of that as well? Or is it, are you more leaving that in the hands of the publisher? Are you building a personal brand for you? I think the association with the B was enough of a brand where I don't really have to be too much in the spotlight and I, I'm okay with that. I don't, I don't really like being a, I don't really like really like being in the in the spotlight or or having two guys interview me on a podcast or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> I have Ben Shapiro on the other line and he's about to debate you. Perfect. <laughs> but one interesting thing about publishers is usually in their contract in the, any book contract you sign, and I don't know how this compares with board games or any other space you guys typically talk about, but they're really not beholden to any kind of promotion promotion or advertisement for your book which is an interesting thing that I didn't know until we started doing books a few years ago. And when I say we, the Babylon, this is my first book with my name on it. The rest of them that I've written, I've been under the Babylon B brand entirely. They, when they sign a book deal with you, depending on how that's structured, typically they're giving you in advance and it's, they're kind of estimating it might sell roughly this many copies and we could make back this advance in the first week or two. And from there, you know, we'll pay small uh, uh, residuals or royalties to the, to the pub, to the author. They are, 
really trying to tap into your momentum and your audience and your fans. They don't, you know, publishers do not have an established fan base in, in the book right. space. You know, if yeah. you look at their social media, it's not like there's a billion people following um, Zondervan or whatever. You know, what is Zondervan going to put out? They follow authors and they When's follow the next brands. next Bible revision come out? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I've got a, a Zondervan tattoo on my lower back. Um, <laughs> Fangirling all over him at the Zondervan <laughs> concert. Going through a traditional publisher, what it does is it takes some of the load off your shoulders from, you know, running a Kickstarter and figuring out how to actually print a book. It helps you some with actually putting the thing together in terms of a cover design and how is this going to lay out. You don't have to know InDesign or, you know, go on Fiverr and hopefully you can find someone who knows InDesign to put your book together. And they provide some contacts for media. So, you know, they'll be able to schedule you on a bunch of radio shows. And that is helpful. Um, that is not nothing. That's definitely something that publishers do that's really helpful. And they also provide um, copy editing typically, which is good. You know, that's again, that's something you could go outsource yourself, but I don't know. A lot of it comes down, you know, publisher, ver I, I don't even know if this was the question, but the discussion of publisher versus self-publish, um, you know, traditional publisher, publisher versus self-publish, a lot of it comes down to the kind of person you are. I know that my strength is good ideas and, you know, getting those down on paper. My strength is not like the logistics of running a mm -hmm. Kickstarter campaign and promoting myself constantly online and, um, and all that. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start with all that stuff and I wouldn't want to. I, I feel like it's a huge deal to, you know, what a lot of people don't, I don't want to say they don't realize it, but they don't fully grasp the gravity of the situation when they decide I will do this myself. I will self publish, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, have started another business that needs to be fed or it will die and you'll lose your house if it dies, you know, in, in some cases, but the, the amount of work required without the promise of pay is really the downside, the potential downside of running your own business, which, you know, when we launch a Kickstarter and it funds, I mean, we did this, uh, actually I referenced it today on a, Form on a, a prospective client call who, who called in and uh, they, they were like, Hey, yeah, we have a Kickstarter that we've launched. It's not going to be successful. Can you help us relaunch it? And I was, you know, I shared with them my, the four and a half possible outcomes of your Kickstarter. It's like absolute failure, likely to fail, likely to have marginal success. And we, you know, that kind of thing, you know, some of the biggest problems that people get is I call it catastrophic success. It's so when you succeed and now after it's over and you've raised some money, you have to fulfill the project. If you're not prepared to do that, you'll lose a lot of money, uh, a lot of money and have a lot of spite and anger and want those years of your life back that you can't get. It is so much nicer just to give it into a publisher's hands sometimes. Yeah, this actually leads into a question I've been wanting to ask. A lot of our listeners haven't been able to work directly with a publisher just yet. And so my question is, is what kind of maybe not so obvious benefits do you get from using a publisher and what kind of rights do you, do you lose when you use a publisher? Yeah. So it, again, it's trade-offs versus self-publishing, you know, there's trade-offs. So, but there are benefits to that that are, that are worth it for some people. And depending on your personality type, you know, you may be better off doing that. I, I personally think like the traditional way of publishing 
did serve as a nice gateway, you know, uh, or gatekeepers. They did kind of serve as a nice set of gatekeepers where you had, you were able to kind of fence out some content that wouldn't have otherwise get, get, got made for better or worse. For me personally, as an author, it makes me at the beginning of the project, I have to sell this thing right away. I have to pitch it during the conception or, you know, early manuscript phase. So I have to already be thinking in terms of how well will this do? So I, I actually enjoy that process of trying to hone down because um, you know, I had a, I had, I have other novel pitches, and it's like some of them publishers just aren't interested in, and some of them um, get more bites, you know. And I think that process is actually helpful for the creative. I, I know that's knocked a lot. I know people praise Kickstarter because it's like now anybody can make a board game. The downside is that now anybody can make a board game, even Andrew, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey man, it um, hurts my feeling. Hey, I back to Deliverance, you know. So the other thing that helps me personally, the way that it, it the way that um publishers work for the way my brain works is that you have a deadline and it's in ink. And if you don't hit your deadline, you don't get your money. And you know, you might even have to return money that you had been paid previously, like when you signed a contract mm -hmm. or whatever. So I actually quite like that process because I had this book idea in a drawer for five years and it wasn't until I signed a contract and I glanced at it and I was like, Oh shoot, the, you know, I have three months to write this book that, um, <laughs> that I actually sat down and disciplined myself to go, okay, I'm gonna write a thousand words a day, you know, for the next two months, and then we will start doing the editing process. That process was not nothing. I mean, it's true that you can sit around and you can perfect an idea forever, but then you're never gonna make mm -hmm. anything. So it actually did force me to buckle down and work. And then, you know, the other benefits, things like, well, not all publishers have direct audiences or distribution, they do have, avenues into places that your book wouldn't normally get the the people we worked with at salem were fantastic you know they had some great feedback during the copy editing phase too where if i had just hired a copy editor off fiverr or craigslist or something you know they might not have known the market to go do you guys is this really the point you're trying to make because this is what it sounds like you know they knew the christian market and they knew like you know this was going to get taken the wrong way do you want to change it or not you know and uh, that kind of feedback was really helpful throughout the process that's awesome and i think that in regard to well i'll just say play testing you know what you're doing is you know in i guess what you're describing with your book is almost like a play testing process with honest players where they're willing to say hey this was fun here's where it needs work and this just felt horrible and you know and you know, the best you can do is just listen and make changes and that kind of thing. And I find simply being open and receiving feedback and that kind of thing. I mean, that, that process takes a long time. I, I think it's oh so valuable. And when you received that harsh or that, that criticism, did the, did you make the changes or did the copy editing team make the changes? And you just said, you know, you approved it or what? Typically in a book contract, you'll have, I'll have to look at exactly how it's worded, but we, you know, we do have kind of final sign off on everything. So there's not, I, there may be some language in there where the publisher can make certain changes without your consent. But for the most part, especially if you're working with a publisher that respects your vision, that's not going to happen. You know, every, every word and typo that was corrected, every creative change was approved. Actually, every, they, they went, they go ahead and do the, the little nuts and bolts type um, uh, changes like periods and quotation marks but they still send that to us for sign off. And then the major creative changes, like, should we change this character's name or, or they allow us to do. So it's like, we have a phone call. Do you, um, do you want to change this? 
um, here's our concern, or um, what about this? Um, and that's the stuff that we change. You know, you, I mean, you know how hard it is to judge your own work. You know how hard it is to read your own work and go, you know, and see the, and spot the thing and spot the issues. You know, we had, <laughs> I, it still might be a little in the book, but at one point we had like three or four characters in a row that the main characters encountered that all like said that they smiled a, a creepy smile or something. And, and it says it like constantly, like, it's like, and then he smiled again and then he smiled and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, we're terrible authors. How did we let this through? <laughs> so if you read the book, you'll still see some vestiges of that where uh, we're, you know, there's a couple characters who smile, but it was way more. And we're like, oh man, that's a great, that's a great idea. Thank you for catching that. You know, I'm like, you obviously don't want that kind of repetition. That was unintentional, you know, but there was other stuff like there's one character. This book is kind of a satirical critique of a lot of, um, modern characters in the church, people like faith healers and prosperity gospel people and stuff like that. And there was a, there was one character that was very clearly based on a real person. You know, it was like in all but name. And then yeah, that disclaimer says, oh, any, any relation is, is in your imagination is not real. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We want people, we want this to be received as broadly as possible, where maybe mm -hmm. if someone doesn't have your exact ax to grind against this or that person, that they still recognize the type of person you're talking about. So we changed the physical description of the person. I think we changed the person's name. We made a few other changes just to kind of broaden that a little. And we felt like that didn't, you know, step on our creative vision because it made sense to go, let's broaden this critique. More people can now enjoy this section of the book versus your seven fans, including your mom, who would mm -hmm. get that joke. So, um, yeah, so that <laughs> yeah. was helpful from them. Yeah. You know, I find it really interesting because uh, being that you're kind of creating something that's in the, we'll just say a Christian thing, and and I have too, it's so easy to push a narrative that is unnecessary and also harmful to the actual product and doesn't actually advance the, I guess, the core of, of the product, what makes it awesome and, you know, where the, I guess it's its purpose. And I had to kind of do much the same with, with mine. I think a lot of projects that come across our desk far more than you would expect seem to have a serious, a serious bias in unnecessary bias in politics or in something else. And I find that to be repugnant in a lot of, in a lot of cases, like, why is this here? Didn't need to be here. You make a whole lot of people mad. And now your funeral is going to be protested because, uh, you were mean. Your funeral will probably be protested anyway. Mm, that's probably true. <laughs> also, you talked about artificial deadlines in what it is that you said just a little bit ago. You said, hey, you know, there, there's three months left and now I need to basically lock yourself in a, in, a, in a room and write a thousand pages a day until the book is done so that you meet this deadline. And I find, I, I, I remember, I don't remember what author it was, but it was a famous author that just locked themselves in a room until they finished their book. And they were there for days and uh, they were miserable, and but they kept the room locked. And I, I could be wrong, but I swear it was a name like Ernest Hemingway or something like that, who had to write a book. And that's, that's what they would do is lock themselves in a room. And uh, I was wondering about, do you make artificial deadlines for yourself? Do you say, hey, today I need to get X number of words or by, you know, for me, it was always like, hey, this convention's coming up. I need to have the next iteration of my game ready so that I can take it to this convention, which is a real deadline, but it's not like I have to have the, the every element finished. It just helped me in the development process. Is that something that you have done 
that you did with your book? Constant fake deadlines, you know, just personal deadlines of, you know, you can, you can do out, you can do out the math because you go, okay, we're, we're roughly trying to make this book about 60,000 words. You know, we have, we, we kind of work it backwards. So I think when we first signed the contract, our technical due date was like six months out. Um, and I knew the, the way a book works, like you want to get words on the paper. You want to, like, it's better to have a complete crappy book and then go back through it than it is to have a bunch of blank pages and, and be trying to create something from scratch. So we had to get words on the paper. So, you know, we, we worked backwards from six months and go, okay, in five months, we basically want to be done and then be able to use that last month to seek feedback from outside readers, make any changes before it goes to the publisher. So if we need five months for that, you know, play testing, <laughs> it's not play testing in books, I guess, but it's <laughs> a, a choose, choose your own adventure book, I guess. But, you know, at five months in, you want to be ready for a small circle of trusted feedback, uh, voices and feedback. Then um, what do we need back from there? And then it's like, we have four months. We need a, a, a very rough first draft. Okay. So that means that we have 16 weeks, 60,000 words. How many words a day is that? I don't know. I have to pull out the calculator, but that's the idea, you know? And so you go, okay, we need this many words a day. And I did have a co-author on this, my managing editor, Joel, who was very helpful. That was an element. Um, I know we only have a few minutes left, but that was an element that was super helpful to me personally. Again, the way I work is to be able to have someone else. That's like when, when I'm depressed and not able to get any words on the page, I know that my co-author is working, is tinkering. So the knowledge that someone else is alongside you and is also uh, bashing their head against the keyboard at the same time you are is, uh, you know, that can't be, can't be understated how encouraging that is. Yeah. It's tough to put an artificial deadline on yourself and then have a full-time job in essence that you have to, that you can't really neglect, right? You can't neglect the, the thing that feeds uh, the family for the vision of something awesome to come. So it's, I totally understand. And then also just simply using your creative energy, like there's a point at which it's depleted and it needs to be recharged and you write, uh, it just, I, for me, I've written a bunch of stuff that I've had. I said, Oh my goodness, what was I even doing? What, what was I thinking when I wrote this? And it's all just useless, you know? So what is it that you're doing personally? to so for marketing on, on this book like what are you doing now what are you planning on doing into the future to support the publisher because i'm sure you want to sell more copies of the book and um so what what is it that you have planned yeah beyond that initial launch window you know the publishers put a lot of stock into that first week but it is it's more of a grueling marathon after you get out of that first launch window and we were you know i know you talked about the four different possible outcomes of a kickstarter it's not dissimilar to how a a book is launched, you know, you're like, uh, when we're writing this thing, you have a range of outcomes in your head from, you know, I'm going to be the next Stephen King and I can retire after launch week, you know, down to like the book is, is not even, not only not selling well, it's not reviewing well, people don't get what you did. That's the kind of the fear that's on the far other side. So we were, we were pleasantly surprised, you know, we were probably about three quarters of the way towards the Stephen King retirement side of the scale, but maybe not financially, but definitely in terms of reviews and, and healthy sales, we were very impressed um, with how it, with how it launched. But then that's when you can't just let up and get your foot off the gas and go, Oh, phew, you know, it didn't, it didn't do terrible. We are looking for every way we can to continue to leverage the book. You know, we were posting on all the different social medias. We were leveraging our email list. My personal style, I'm, I tend to not want to push things very much, you know, 
the way the Babylon Bee works, it's like we throw a headline out there and we just let it let it ride. And, you know, we don't sit there and, and pump our own stuff very much. I have to learn. One, one lesson I have to learn is like, as an author, you have to promote yourself. You have to do some of that. You know, you have to you have to schedule yourself for, you know, make a commitment to go. I'm going to try to get on five different podcasts this week and continue to talk about this as that sales tale kind of winds down um, after the launch. You hope for good word of mouth. Um, and then from there, you kind of have to find creative ways to for us to put it on different sales platforms. where like, you know, we want people to go to the Babylon B store and buy a B T-shirt and they're on there and then they see. Uh, you know, the Babylon Bee Guide series, and then our book is thrown in there as an add-on. You know, that's something that's like, that can continue very healthy sales uh, throughout the lifespan. Because our first book, How to Be a Perfect Christian, uh, didn't sell very well at first. But through that kind of long sales strategy of like, we just kept bringing in pallets of a thousand books at a time or whatever into our store. And we gave them away as, as uh, promos. We, we, people were constantly adding, it's a very popular add-on on our store where people will just add it on to another order where they have a t-shirt. Um, and so that, that's a good strategy for us as well is to just kind of find ways to make this a, an evergreen title that's going to constantly be popping up. Um, unfortunately, you know, the word of mouth isn't something you can, you can fake, but you do have to kind of do a shotgun blast out there and hope to generate as much as you can. Yeah, very much like a Kickstarter campaign where you're going to generate 40 to 50% of how much you you raise overall in the first 48 hours. You know, that's true for for many products. Tech products is a little bit different, but I think that publishing is you know, you have to hit critical mass in order to it's almost like you have to show the consumer that it's a winner so that they're willing to jump in, you know? probably be a whole lot different. I don't know if you'd have back deliverance, if it just barely eked over the funding goal on the last day, you know, definitely would not have. <laughs> yeah. So that's because we're all elitist jerks on the inside. Uh, as board gamers, we're fickle as can be. It's like, this isn't a winner. I don't care how good it is. I just, you know, <laughs> there are too many other things competing for my attention right now. Uh, we're approaching the end of our time, but uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share where people can go to find the book. And also, you know, if there were any last minute things you wanted to share or say? Yeah. So, you know, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, various other online bookstores. It'll eventually be in the Babylon Bee shop. Like I said, I, I don't think we have any, I don't think our copies have arrived yet. And so people can check it out at any of those places. We don't really have a preference, but uh, we're just happy that people can support us and, and pick up that book and, and check out our stuff on BabylonBee.com and follow us on all the socials. Very cool. So now uh, I guess last question is who, you pitched it at the beginning of this podcast, but at the end of this podcast, who who should read this book? If you are like X, what? Well, the book is is fairly squarely targeted at Christian market, but we really try to broaden it as much as possible so people who are agnostics or are kind of outside the circle of a hardcore Christian can still enjoy it. It's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's the Princess Bride book. It's the Terry Pratchett, you know, with a Christian worldview. It's very, it's a multiverse story that has hope because so many multiverse stories are about nihilism. Mm -hmm. And we believe that there's an objective meaning to the universe. And, uh, and we wanted to show that, you know, there's all these, all these different realities that you go to when you dream. And, they all uh, sing the glory of of the king, and that's kind of the that's kind of the um, the message of the book is to just keep um, enduring and trudging forward, and that there is purpose to our lives. And so it is a very hopeful book. And people who people like to laugh, people who want a little bit of inspiration, if you're feeling worn down, 
that's uh, that's who we're targeting this at. I thought the answer to life was was forty two. That's is. correct. We forgot yeah. the question. We <laughs> <that> question. <laughs> You just mentioned all my favorite authors, so I'm I'm hooked. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's I told you that's the secret to pitching a good book. Just say this is the modern day uh, C.S. Lewis, and people buy it. So, <laughs> yeah. well, uh, thanks so much, Kyle, for joining us. Uh, you know, it's been it's been awesome and a pleasure. I guess we'll uh... yeah. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. And with that said, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. A big shout out to Kyle Mann, Editor-in-Chief of the Babylon Bee, for joining us today. And also check out his latest book, The Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress, an allegorical tale at Amazon.com and your favorite local bookseller. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode... Give us a visit at crowdfundingnerds.com to view our other episodes. And if you need some help in your crowdfunding Kickstarter project, click on the Hire Us button and we will help you out. Also, if you have any other questions, uh, feel free to visit our lovely little Facebook group, the Crowdfunding Nerds Community. And we have a lot of people there that can help answer your questions and share things with you that you may have not realized you needed or wanted in your crowdfunding project. And with that said, stay cool, stay classy, and stay nerdy. Till next week.